You're listening to Mountainside Podcast. Um, I'll get you to open up in your Bibles at Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start there, and then we're going to spend our rest of time in Matthew. Um, but before we get into Genesis 2, uh, if, if you've just kind of parachuted in or you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, we are in a series called uh, uh, Why Am I Here or What Am I Here For? Depends on who you talk to, me or Matt. Um, um, and we've been in this series trying to mine down to the bedrock of what is most important. What are the, the brass tacks um, of life to help you discover conclusively what is your life's purpose? Now, there are all kinds of answers to that question, of course, depending on who you ask or maybe depending on kind of what you valued or what you've prioritized in life. Um, we might not say this out loud, but we would structure our lives in, in, in certain ways that we give all kinds of answers to this question, right? I'm here to make as much money as I can. I'm here to consume as many experiences as I can. You know, the one with the most toys when he dies wins, that type of idea. I'm here to put as many stamps on my passports as possible. I'm here to mine coal, pay for a mortgage so I can retire in golf. That's what I'm here for. Now, too often... This is not news, but we just think that it won't be news for us. We think it's what happens to other people. But too often, people get partway through their life journey, and then they have this crisis moment because they discover that what they thought they were here for, what they thought their life was all about, what they've been chasing after is not nearly as important or significant as they had hoped because they answer the question poorly. Now, we want to answer that question well, and so we thought we let Jesus answer it for us. So two weeks ago, Matt showed us that Jesus invites us to, to use our lives to build God's kingdom, to push into God's way of life in such a way, in such a manner that you both experience and help other people experience Jesus's vision for life. Now, this is critical because according to Jesus, that's actually where purpose and contentment and security and love, all those key ingredients that we all long for, that's where it's housed in God's kingdom. And we learn from Jesus's life, as we look at Jesus's life, that he structured his life in such a way that brought the kingdom in close. Now, if you're new to church, when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's like Jesus's shorthand for life as God envisions it. Life is the way that God designed it, where God's rule and God's reign is, is really close. And we see from the way that Jesus structured his life that the kingdom of God is all about relationships. It's experienced and it's advanced in the context of relationships. In fact, Jesus' life would show us that there are three vital relationships, or maybe you might say three kind of relational directions that our life our lives need to push into if we are going to experience God's kingdom and discover and fulfill why we are here. And the first uh, direction, relational direction, that Jesus would say you are here for is an upward direction. You are here to know God. You were made to know him, not just know about him, not just know him from a distance, not know him as a fan, but to know him as a friend in such a way that your heart, your mind, your will are infused with God's love so that eternal life, as Jesus describes it, increasingly becomes your own life. That was last week's sermon. If you missed it, 
I'm sorry because God's presence was weighty that morning, and I would encourage you to listen to the podcast so you, yeah, can stay up to speed. So you were made to have an upward relationship with God. However, right from the earliest parts of God's story, we see that, that we have relational needs that are actually bigger than just God alone. Scripture begins with, with these words. It says, let us create humanity in our image. God who is Trinity, God who is three in one, who himself is a divine community, creates us in his image, which means at the very core of your DNA, you are a relational being. Whether you're introverted or extroverted, doesn't really matter. You are, an intro, you are a relational being created for a community. And so your humanity craves, it needs, and it flourishes in the context of relationships. That's in part why you have the capacity to, to know and need God. But we also see that God never intended to meet all of your relational needs. In fact, in the poetic narrative of Genesis chapter 2, at the very start of God's story, Adam is with God. He's in the garden in paradise. He has purpose. He has a job to do. He has this unfiltered relationship with God. He's got the best prayer life possible. Right? He talks to God face to face. He's having all these kairos moments, all these aha moments with God because he walks with God every evening. And if that's not cool enough, Adam is like Dr. Doolittle, like the animals are all over, and he's just like, it's just this amazing scene. He's surrounded by everything that God created and called good. But then God sits back and he surveys all that he has made, and so for the first time, he recognizes and sees that something is not good. We read this. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And you might think, well, he isn't alone. He's got you, God. But according to God, that's not good enough. Adam's relational needs include an upward direction with God, but he's got relational needs that are bigger than just God alone. And so God gifts Adam with his mate, with his companion. We read these words in Genesis chapter 2, I'll start in verse 19. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each of the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But as for man, no helper was found as his complement. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs, closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the text changes right here. And then the man said, and it's like he breaks into poetry. It's like he breaks into song. In my mind's eye, I, 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 just, I just love this scene in my mind's eye and kind of this narrative I envision Adam, he's kind of got a clipboard and he's like checking off every imaginable animal that's going by and he's all, you know, he's all industrial and he's all focused. And then God brings a naked woman into the scene and suddenly he's John Legend, right? He like breaks into poetry and he breaks into song and he says this, 
This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, woman in Hebrew basically is translated mine, which I love that because he's like cat, zebra, elephant, mine. That one is mine. I, I, love, I just love that whole narrative. And then Adam, and then we read these words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and join with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They establish a family. God, who is at his core family, father, son, and spirit, has designed us for family as well. So you were made for deep, meaningful relationships, experience in the context of family. Now, you know that is true, even if you don't believe the Genesis, what I just read, even if you don't believe those words, you know that this is true. Because loneliness is evidence itself that you were created to experience community, to experience family. Because when we don't have them, when we feel isolated and alone, we know that something fundamentally feels broken in our story. Our psyche and our well-being suffers dramatically. I heard of a really interesting study this last week. It was performed by two Canadian psychologists who were looking at the rates of suicide and depression in England during World War II. And they discovered that the rates of depression and suicide actually decreased during the London Blitz. While Nazi bombs were raining down you know, raining down terror on the city, depression levels dropped significantly. People's moods actually increased for the better while bombs were smashing and obliterating their homes. Now, how can that be? Like, that, does, that just doesn't seem, that doesn't seem to make sense. And so they concluded, they pressed into this, and they concluded that the blitz for citizens into bomb shelters, bringing people together, under a common cause, with a shared experience. Night after night, there was this rhythm of gathering together, a sense of community, a sense of togetherness was formed, and we need that. When the blitz ended and life returned to normal, the rates of depression and suicide also returned to their pre-blitz levels, which shows us that loneliness is actually more devastating than Nazi bombs. Now, this explains the phenomenon that is going on all over the Western world where, where rates of anxiety and depression are skyrocketing in Western culture as loneliness becomes the real pandemic that is gripping the Western world. Um, I, I read in the New York Times, it was an article from 2018. I read it this week. But a uh, study shows that 20% of Brits self-identify as lonely most of the time or all of the time. In fact, it's having such an impact on both the healthcare system and kind of the whole ethos of the culture that former Prime Minister Theresa May created a parliamentary minister for loneliness. It is such an issue in the country. And the study says that other Western nations, including U.S. and Canada, the rates of loneliness are higher than the U.K., now, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, and one is that we can kind of see the breakdown in community all over, you know, even our own country. 
people are less and less committed to those groups that historically provided a, a sense of relational belonging, whether it was your bowling team or your sports, you know, sports team that you were a part of or a club or a church. We see that attendance and all of those things are on the decline. I heard uh, when I was driving home this week, I heard on CBC radio, a counselor from, a city counselor from Terrace was lamenting how much her community has changed. And she said that when she was younger, the people in her town, they knew each other. She said they were, had time for each other. There was a sense of connection, but she said those days are sadly gone. In its, um, in its place, she says that they're there, we've increased these digital forms of connectivity, but sadly we're learning that connectivity and community are not the same thing. And, and we know that. We know that liking the photo on Instagram from somebody you met on the ski hill a year ago is not the same as having a face-to-face conversation with an actual person. We might feel a little bit connected with them, like we know a little bit what's going on in their lives, but there really is no relational connection that happens. Not with zeros and ones. But we fill our time with more and more digital connection and less and less community. And so loneliness is on the rise. Secondly, loneliness is an, is an inevitable consequence of a foundational value that has defined and shaped our country. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I've pounded on this drum so much. But that foundational value is individualism. Our nation is founded on the value of the individual. We have this subconscious, instinctual bias that resists anything that doesn't directly serve our own self-interest. We're a nation of people who have an overinflated sense of independence. And that bent that we just marinate in, our country's been marinated in it for 200 years, that, that bent that we have to the self, it's seen everywhere in our culture. And you might think, well, that's not just our culture. That's just human nature. That's just the way the human species is everywhere all the time. It's not actually. Sociologists agree that human culture can be broadly defined into two categories. Those that emphasize the individual and those that emphasize the community. In Western culture, the needs of the individual trump the needs of the community. And so the primary way we self-identify is as the autonomous self. They're having community up there, so don't let your individual frustrations trump what they are doing up there. We celebrate that. But in our culture, we have this language, hey, you do what's best for you. You look out for number one. You live your truth. That's the language of an autonomous, individual-focused culture. But not everybody in the world lives that way. Certainly not people in you know, Eastern cultures, not in Asian cultures. In those cultures, an individual sense of identity is fused with the family. The family comes first. And so what is best for the family is automatically what's best for me. In that culture, you can't define yourself apart from your family or apart from your group or apart from your community. And I would say that those cultures actually live into the relational DNA imprinted on us better than our own. Genesis tells us that you were designed for family. And that's why when families break down, when your parents get divorced, when when you suffer divorce, it is a soul-shaking experience. 
It, it cuts the very DNA of, of your wiring. Now, a lot of you in this church have really grabbed onto that thinking. You value family. You're doing all you can to keep growing yours. Good job. That's awesome. And we've got families in our church that when they go through the inevitable struggles that come in marriages or families, they're, they're, they're not you know, hitting the eject button. They're, they're pushing through. They're, they're trying to leverage the resources of Jesus and the gospel to bring healing and forgiveness into families, which is awesome. And so as a, as a church, of course, we celebrate the family unit. We see it as one of the places that we must push into to push back against our cultural bent to the self and to live into the blueprint that God designed for each of us. That's all true. Now here's the part you're not going to like. And then Jesus comes along and he starts saying some stuff about family that is so radical and so uncomfortable and so convicting that it shocks us as it came out of Jesus' mouth. At least it does for me. Look at Matthew chapter 4. We'll start with Jesus' easy one, and then we'll get progressively harder. <laughs> we'll, just kinda, we'll just give you some light reps before we start ripping spiritual muscles here in a minute. Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was also called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now, this is a Fairly simple idea, but this is really, really critical that we collectively get this idea. Right from the very beginning, we see that Jesus does not call a disciple. He calls disciples plural. To follow Jesus is to be in community with other disciples. It means being together, apprenticing and learning under the master Jesus together. Furthermore, nowhere in Scripture does Jesus ever command anyone to be a disciple. He commands us to make disciples, which is itself a relational endeavor. It means life with somebody. It means bringing somebody into your own life. It means somebody has brought you into their life. It is a profoundly relational experience. Now, this shatters this Western individualistic notion that I could just follow Jesus on my own you know, just me and my Bible and Jesus, and that's all I need to spiritually thrive. Genesis would say, nah, uh Jesus would say, that is not the way of the kingdom. To accept the invitation to follow Jesus is to simultaneously accept the invitation to be in community with other disciples. Now, not everybody accepted Jesus' invitation, but everyone who did discovered that a collection of faces walked into their life story along with Jesus. It wasn't just them and Jesus. Because he doesn't come packaged alone. He comes packaged with community. See, the kingdom is not a you and God reality. It's a lived experience with other disciples. All right, simple idea. But profound. Are we, are we clear on that? Because 
because now we're going to take another step. Look at, uh, look at Matthew chapter 12. Uh, on this day, Jesus is teaching. His disciples who are following him are all around. And in fact, there's so many disciples that I think Luke has it that Jesus is in a house. He's teaching in a house. And, you know, it's packed right to the, out to the door. And people can't get in the door. And Jesus' family shows up and they knock on the door and they want a word with Jesus, but they can't get in. And so word starts to filter through the crowd and gets up to Jesus that his mom and his brothers are there. And Jesus says this, Who is my, bro- my mother and who are my brothers? And then he stretched out his hands toward his disciples and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that person is my brother, my sister, my mother. This is really critical. Jesus defines his family not by his bloodlines, not by the house he grew up in, not by the people who share his same last name as him. Jesus defines his family as those who are spiritually journeying with him. To be a child of the Father is to be a brother and sister with those of the faith, which is your spiritual family. And get this. This spiritual family is meant to take priority even over your biological family. That's what Jesus practiced. That's what Jesus taught. That's what he called his disciples to. Now, this is a radical thought, at least for me. It's a very, very convicting thought, for sure to me. And I doubt that any of us think this way. I definitely doubt that any of us live this way. But this is a teaching and the call of Jesus. That our spiritual family is meant to even take priority over our biological family. This is the only way that you can interpret all of those seemingly anti-family statements that Jesus makes in the gospel. Let let me show you two of them. One is in Matthew uh, chapter 8. We read this. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus is so bad at closing the deal when people want to follow him. He just doesn't make it easy. Jesus says this, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. To which the guy went, blink, blink. What does that mean? I I don't even, is that a yes? Is that a no? no? I I don't know. I don't know what that means. Another disciple came to Jesus and said this, Lord, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Now, just so you understand what's going on, this guy wasn't literally asking, like, it's not like the funeral was tomorrow and I need to just go home and go to the funeral. That's not what Jesus was saying. What this guy is saying is that, hey, I want to go back and be with my dad because if I'm not with him when he dies, if I'm not life doing life with the family unit when he dies, I'll get cut out of the inheritance. And so I'll go back, and whenever he dies, whenever that day comes, and I get my inheritance, then, Jesus, I'm all yours. And Jesus says, no, if you're going to choose me, you need to prioritize prioritize me even over your family. This is, like, uncomfortable. And then it gets worse. Look at Luke 14. 
If you want to be my disciple, you must. Not you should, not you ought to, not I suggest. You must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Okay, let me try to make this clear. Jesus is obviously not advocating hate because the mark of a disciple is love. We're supposed to even love our enemies, let alone our family. Of course, we are to love. Jesus is being hyperbolic here. He is saying that the call to follow Jesus to being a disciple even trumps the call to your biological family. It even takes a greater priority to your family, which means part of loving your biological family well requires you to love Jesus even more. And to embrace Jesus is to, by definition, embrace his family. Now, let me give you three things that jump out to me about this, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, I'll spend most of my time on the first, the second, and third to go really quick in case you're on the clock, saying how long this is going to be. First thing that jumps out at me, um, Jesus' words here should tell us how important it is that our biological family become part of Jesus' spiritual family. That the most loving thing you could do for your kids or your spouse is to do all that you can to bring them into Jesus' spiritual family. Mom and dads, we need to be reminded that we need to be praying for our kids. Husbands, wives, you need to be praying for your spouse. We need to be using our home as a place to strengthen spiritual ties, to be sharing our faith with our family so that they learn it, so that they see it, so that they have it modeled to them. But your family and your kid's spiritual family must be bigger than just you. You know, the stats around the, transfer, the transferability of faith from one generation to the next are terrible. You've probably heard the stats. They're super depressing, especially for a pastor's kid, because the stats on pastor's kids are even worse than the stats on general kids in the church. If there's anything that would make me quit my job, it's the stats on what happens to pastor's kids. And so I've been trying to figure this out where we're trying to like, hey, the church isn't dad's mistress and the church isn't everything that we're all about. And yet trying to bring Jesus into our home. And I'm like, I'm kind of bobbling this thing as a dad trying to figure this all out. But the stats tell us that the majority of kids who grow up in the church do not stay in the church. And I wonder if it's not in part Because we have shown them, their biological family has shown them that spiritual family is optional. We've got sports and clubs and weekends activities that plug up the calendar with family activities, which are great. I'm all for family activities. But they take priority over and over again over our spiritual family. We'll gather with our spiritual family when there isn't anything else going on. Our investment in our biological families often comes at the expense of their spiritual family. And so we give this message loud and clear that the church, their spiritual family, is the thing we opt into only when there's something that's not more important on the calendar. And then we grieve when our kids mimic us. And they don't make their spiritual family a priority. 
If you don't, your kids probably won't either. Um, Matt's a pastor's kid, which makes me fear for my, past- my kids even more. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Matt's a pastor's kid that turned out pretty good. And so I've talked to him lots about kind of the environment in his home, and his home wasn't perfect, but one of the things, it was just ingrained in him was the rhythm of spiritual practice and community. That, that this, was, this was part of the deal with Jesus. This wasn't secondary. This wasn't an option. I was taking one of my kids to Bible study last week, and I was asking if she was looking forward to going. And she said, of course, Dad. And these are her exact words. She said, this is my safe place. This is where I can go to to be with friends who are my age, um, who let me be me, where I can experience love even when I make mistakes or I say something uncool. I wouldn't miss it. See, my daughter is starting to experience a spiritual family that is bigger than the Bardens, and it's critical that she does. You were created to be part of a spiritual family, which is bigger than just your household. Your spiritual thriving, your relational wiring, your needs, and your obedience to Jesus calls you into meaningful connection with other disciples of Jesus. So meaningful that in time you'd say, yeah, we're family. We're, we're like family. First observation. Second observation. This, Jesus' idea of spiritual family, is why singleness is a viable option in the kingdom of why you can be unmarried and still be relationally fulfilled in Jesus' kingdom because your need and your call to family are met in the spiritual family. Third observation. Our individualism that we are so ingrained in will cause us to try to diminish Jesus' words, will cause us to say, yeah, but, and no, I don't think that's realistic, and that's not practical. Our individualism will try to minimize Jesus' words, but it's actually Jesus' call, which is the antidote to our vacuous individualism. The call to a deep commitment to a spiritual family is an expression of what does it mean to follow Jesus and be like Jesus because we become like Jesus for the most part in relationships. Nobody I have ever met thrives on their own. It's the person who stays connected and committed to a spiritual community. That is the one who grows. In a private, isolated spiritual journey, you might be able to construct a religion about God, but you won't experience much grace. You might have a doctrine of love, but there isn't much loving that happens. For grace, love, patience, those attributes of Jesus are all attributes of relationship. They don't exist outside of relationship. And so relationships is what moves the gospel from this theoretical idea into this shared reality that we keep leveraging for each other because community, disciples, together require the gospel. Like, look at the first set of Jesus' disciples, and then we'll wrap it up. These are the names of the 12 disciples who became known as apostles. First, there was Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed Jesus. Now, these, this is a very diverse, messy group. 
Um, you've got some brothers, and so you've got the whole family dynamic going on in this group. Um, you've got Simon the Zealot, and I know you can just read over that, but zealots were like sworn guerrilla fighters who had pledged their life to violently overthrow Rome. So the zealots would rise up and they'd do ambush attacks where they'd, they'd attack, you know, some Roman soldiers and they'd stick them, you know, with shivs and knives and they'd leave them to dead. And that was a zealot. So Jesus calls Simon the zealot to come and follow him, and he does. But look who else is in the group. Matthew, the tax collector, collecting taxes for Rome. He's collecting money. He's squeezing funds out of Jewish people to pay for Rome's oppression of the Jewish people. The very thing that Simon has sworn to violently overthrow. Imagine how great that first small group meeting is around the fire. Right? Anybody have anything that's on their mind? Simon's like, yeah, I want to kill him. And Jesus is like, thank you for sharing, Simon. Matthew's like, I don't really feel like this is my safe place here. I don't really, right? That's like, this group is totally, completely messy. There's no chemistry amongst them. There's no natural affinity around politics or career choice. The only thing that they have in common is Jesus. And they each accepted Jesus' invitation to follow him. And in accepting that invitation, they've accepted each other into their lives. They're going to grow with each other. They're going to suffer with each other. They're going to have their first wins together. They're going to be in the boat that they think is going to sink together. They're all going to like pee themselves a little bit in fear when they meet Legion, the guy who's possessed with demons, and he breaks the chains, and he's coming at them, and they're worried that he's going to break their necks. They have all that same experience together. And then when Jesus is resurrected, they are together filled with his spirit, and they start taking Jesus at his word, and they go out, and they make disciples, and they start creating their own spiritual families, and so on, and so on, and so on, until we get here. A spiritual family is at the core of your relational needs. It is a place where you have the opportunity to to heal from the inevitable relational wounds that come with family, biological or spiritual. But we need one another. We need to be committed to each other. We need to to not just be committed to the ideal of community. So many people are committed to, oh yeah, community is the buzzwords in churches, but, but community, when you press through the ideal and you press through the veneer of politeness, it's pretty messy. Because I know Chris LaFortune. And him and I are like oil and water sometimes, right? And we're doing life deeply together. And it's like, it's awesome at times. And it is so hard at times. And it requires humility. And we both have to ask each other for for forgiveness all the time. Because community is where real hopes and real hurts and the messiness of real life comes out. And real love and real grace, the resources of gospel, flex their real muscle to initiate the deep soul work that Jesus does in us and through us. But he does that soul work in the context of spiritual family. So why are you here? You are here to know God, to have relationships upwards, but you are here to be part of a spiritual family that Lord willing will include your biological family, but it's bigger than it. And we wanna be a place that continues to structure stuff and prioritizes stuff both for you to grow upward with God, but you to grow inward with family. And it's messy, and it takes time. 
but it's worth it. We hope you enjoyed this week's message at Mountainside Community Church. If you would like to get connected to one of our campuses or just learn more about who we are as a church, then we encourage you to visit our website, mountainsidechurch.ca. God bless.